So before I read this, I, I want to I set this, this stage for you. I asked Marty and the band to sing that last song, uh, We Will Feast, We Will Sing in the House of Zion. I want you to imagine um, a people who had been conquered and dragged away from their home. And years and years and years go by with the people living in exile. And while they were in exile, children were born who had only known that place as their home. And the people of this overpowering country would say to these exiles, sing us the songs of your homeland. They wanted them to sing songs of their distant homeland as entertainment. And there would be this bitterness in the heart of this exiled people having to sing their songs to entertain their captors. And small children would say, but this is my homeland. And older, wiser women and men would look at these small children and say, this is not where you come from. We come from somewhere else. And one day we will go back to our home. That is the essence of that song. It is when we are in exile, in, in places that are not our true home, that we have to cultivate a memory. That's why Marty said, look at one another. If you are in exile, you should be a remnant in exile. For the next four weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of Daniel, and we're going to be looking at Daniel uh, as a template for how to live faithfully in a place that is not your ultimate home. I would submit to you that your current reality, your living, breathing, eating, drinking, working, playing reality here in this world is not your ultimate homeland. And yet there are things that we must do here. Daniel's going to tell us what those things are. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read an entire chapter of the Bible, Daniel 1. And I'm going to skip over a weird name or two just because I'm Southern and it's hard to say I'm right. In the third year of the reign of King Joachim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Joachim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, one of those words, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names, new names. He renamed them. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. 
If he should see in you poorer condition than the other young men your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard over whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine, and they were, they were given to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning with which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray for grace to dive into an ancient text. God, we ask you today at the outset of four weeks where we're sitting in the book of Daniel to show us what Babylon looks like, to help us not be anxious about that, but honest, and to show us how to live as a people who remember where we come from and where we are headed. I pray, God, that you would, as a merciful father, place your hand under our chins and lift up our heads so that we would see that what's happening around us is not ultimate. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be brave. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to walk through this chapter looking for what the Lord would have to say to us. Because I actually, my heart is so full right now uh, after this time of study. I believe the Lord has really significant things he wants to say. And we're just going to hope that he's going to help us to see what he wants us to see in Daniel 1. The first thing we need to sit with is this idea that Jerusalem has fallen Um, Jerusalem has fallen at the hands of a mighty power. They have laid siege to the holy city and Judah and Israel have fallen. And now they've been taken away. Uh, They sit by those rivers in Babylon. Uh, They are being told to sing songs of their homeland as a form of entertainment. They've had so much taken from them. The story of Daniel begins with the Jews and specifically Daniel and his friends sitting in a very dark and confusing place. They are at a very low ebb. Now, if you've spent time at Trinity, and I just alluded to it a few moments ago, you have heard us and countless Christians around the world refer to Babylon as a kind of shorthand for learning to live in exile, learning to live in a place that is not our ultimate home, but a place nonetheless that possesses a compelling culture. Babylon was a world power. Uh, Babylon was a compelling place to be, and yet it wasn't Daniel's home. It wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's home. They had to take up residence there. 
And in much the same way, what God wants to reinforce through a study like this is that where you live, the current cultural moment in which we live, a world rife with division and strife and fear, a world of tribalism and, and, and conflict among people, uh, this is not our home. And everything about the world around us, shorthand for Babylon, wants to convince us that what you experience day in and day out is ultimate reality. I believe Daniel has something really important to teach us. And we need to remember that our story started somewhere else and it's headed somewhere else so that we might cultivate faithfulness. So if Babylon is exile, if Babylon is not our real homeland, but a place we occupy, I feel like this text tells us a few things that Babylon seeks to do to us. And we're just going to look at those things. And again, this is coming straight from the passage. So now we're going to look at four things that Babylon, that, that culture, that shorthand of a place that is not your place, a place that is counter to your homeland. What does it seek to do? Number one, Babylon seeks to rename us. Babylon seeks to reframe our understanding of who we even are, who, are, who we are. What, what is your identity? What you see as you look at these first few verses is that Daniel was given a name, that the three friends of his were given names, and we know them by their name. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They lived in the fiery furnace. We only know them really by their Babylonian names. Babylon seeks to tell someone who you were is no more. Now we define who you are. Where does your current reality seek to rename you? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a set of relationships. Maybe it's social expectations. I don't know what it looks like for you. I know where the wider world around me seeks to rename me, seeks to cause me to be confused about who I really am in the Lord, who I really belong to. Babylon sought to rename these friends. Babylon does its part to try to tell us who we really are. It tries to redefine us in ways that run counter maybe to what the Lord would say. The second thing Babylon seeks to do is Babylon seeks to take certain things from us. There's almost a throwaway statement at the beginning of the passage. It said, some of the vessels from the house of God were taken from the house of God and Nebuchadnezzar placed them in the halls of his own gods. And that almost easy to forget. It's like, just a little sentence in the midst of a big narrative. And I would say to you, though, that that speaks to this tendency for the prevailing culture to take things that are ours by rights, things that belong to us. Here are some examples. You were made as a child of God to hear the voice of God. And yet the static and the noise and the anxiety of our culture tells us that's not possible anymore. Many of us walk into a room like this and we think, I don't know how to hear God. Hearing God is for somebody who lives a different kind of life. And our world is so noisy. There's so much competing for our attention and our affection that it's almost like we've been dropped in the middle of a massive city that is competing for our attention. And because of that, we've lost the ability to hear God. We think it's reserved for experts or mystics or contemplatives. And yet when Jesus looked at people like you and me, he referred to us as sheep. And when he referred to us as sheep, he wasn't paying us a high compliment. Sheep are fragile. 
Sheep are stubborn. Sheep are prone to groupthink. But they're also capable of knowing their name. They're also capable of functioning almost like a pet. My dog is not the brightest creature that's ever been born, but she knows her name. And when I call Joe to come to me, she comes for the most part. We were meant to hear the voice of God. And yet our wider world has told us that's something reserved for the expert. Probably the best thing I've ever read on hearing God is a book that Dallas Willard wrote called Hearing God. An amazing exploration on what it means and why it should be both routine and sublime. You should have routine opportunities to hear from God. A moment of devotional reading where something clicks. But you also should hope for burning bush experiences where God intervenes and arrests your life and changes your heart inside out. Here's another thing that Babylon has taken from us or seeks to take from us is our ability to be present with each other, our ability to engage in silence and solitude. We live in a world that is so full of hurry, noise, and crowds that we've begun to forget that there is a space that we're meant to carve out where we receive from God and grow out of that silence. If you don't carve out regular spaces for quiet, you will not hear the Lord with consistency and predictability. You won't do it. Because God will not compete with the cacophony of noise and hurry and crowds. God will not strike through the static on a daily basis. He wants us to recognize the world wants to take something from you that is yours by right. Babylon seeks to take things. What do you feel like you have lost? Are there places where you feel like, I would like to be this kind of person, but my world won't let me. My job won't let me. My friends won't let me. My engagement with social media won't let me. My appetites won't let me. Babylon seeks to take things from us. What do you sense has been taken from you? But is yours by birthright. The third thing that Babylon seeks to do is it seeks to disorient us. I think about these four friends from a place, a different place, and then all of a sudden they're dropped down in a culture where the music is different, the food is different, the language is different, the streets are not familiar to them, and you're totally disoriented when you find yourself in a place like that. I remember doing doctoral studies and spending like 10 days in Bangkok, Thailand. It was the most disorienting place I'd ever been in my life. I, I found myself like my, my ethnocentricism just started like welling up in me. I just wanted to find a place where somebody would speak English and I could drink an Americano. Um, I found myself like instinctually ordering words like Americanos because I was so disoriented. I wanted something that felt like home to me. When we get into places where we lose our bearing, things that were really clear to us in a more pristine environment all of a sudden don't feel as clear. And we begin to kind of renegotiate terms with reality. One of the things that I think Babylon seeks to do for people like you is the same thing that it sought to do for a person like Daniel. It seeks to disorient us, to turn us upside down and cause us to begin to not know north from south, head from tails. Where do you feel disoriented? Is there an invitation in that disorientation to see that you're needing to step into remembering really who you ultimately are? And finally, Babylon seeks to rehome us, to assimilate us into its culture. It seeks to tell us this is now your home. 
And I think about Daniel who was dragged there. And then I think about the children of Daniel who only knew Babylon. And for them, it would be tempting to go, this is my home. And Daniel had to look at his children and say, we're not from here. We're from somewhere else. And by God's grace, one day we will go back to our home. I want to say this to you at the risk of sounding like a separatist. This is not your home. This is not where we come from. You, if you belong to Jesus, are a child of the kingdom of God. You belong to a different country. You belong to a place where mammon doesn't rule. You belong to a place where a quest for security and comfort and satisfaction are not the ultimate thing. They are here, but they're not where we come from. And yet we live in these spaces where we touch these things that we crave, that speak to our desire, and yet they can't ultimately give us what they promise. This is where we have to look at each other and say, we're not from around here. We're from somewhere else. Do you have anybody in your life telling you that? Are you saying that to anyone in your life? The second movement in this passage, the first one is, Jerusalem fell. The second one is it's possible for you and me to experience God's favor even in the midst of Babylon. What we see in this story is an amazing story. Daniel knew this place is not my home, but all of a sudden he's hand selected. He's been given this opportunity to to experience power and privilege and opportunity. Old Nebuchadnezzar plucks him and some friends out of the crowd and says, we're going to educate you. We're going to give you opportunity. It's possible for you to experience favor. But here's the thing about favor. I wake up every morning and I pray for favor. Every day I ask God for favor. I'm like, Lord, give me favor with people so that I can be an ambassador of your kingdom for people. I ask God for those opportunities every day. He answers those prayers, not because I'm a pastor, but because I ask. And a lot of times I find myself in really strange, interesting conversations where God just seems to open up a door because I ask for favor every single day. But here's what I know about favor. Just because I experience favor in my job, with my friends, in society, just because I have opportunity to power and privilege and influence, that does not then therefore mean that this is my home. Daniel was able to experience favor and say, I ain't from around here. He was able to be engaged without being confused as to what favor means. And I believe that we live in a world that so tells us to crave significance that when we experience significance that comes from God, we begin to think, oh, we're now living the American dream. The favor God has for you is not so that you would become confused about whether this is your true homeland. He wants you to live as a resident alien. And resident aliens like Daniel and like you are meant to experience measures of favor in the world around you, where you work, where you live, where you play. So Daniel experiences favor, but he doesn't confuse what it is. Here's how he doesn't confuse what it is. The third movement in this passage, Daniel refrains from partaking in certain provisions of Babylon. He fasts. So what does Daniel do? He actually says, I don't want to eat the, the, the food and drink the wine. 
And a lot of people have said, well, that's because Daniel was like a Southern Baptist and he just didn't think drinking wine was good. Uh, Jews at the time that Daniel lived had no problem drinking wine. So it wasn't about abstaining from alcohol. Um, it wasn't about like some like voodoo curse on the food. It, it, it also wasn't because Daniel was just being a separatist. Because we know from the text, Daniel was involved in government. He was involved in relationships. He was deeply involved in the world around him, even serving King Nebuchadnezzar faithfully. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. He just said, I don't want to defile myself. So rather than being a separatist, what is Daniel saying when he says, I will abstain and just drink water and eat vegetables for a set amount of time? What he's saying is, Nebuchadnezzar, I will serve you, but I don't belong to you. He was actually demonstrating differentiation. And if you spend five minutes with me, you're going to hear me talk about differentiation. It's one of my favorite words in the English language. Here's what differentiation means. Ed Friedman, God rest his soul, the man changed my life when I read his book, A Failure of Nerve and Generation to Generation. I read two books from start to finish every year. One of them is the Holy Bible. It's a big book, but you can do it. And the other is A Failure of Nerve, Ed Friedman's book. I read it every year because I need to remember every year what he's saying. This is what Ed says about differentiation. He says, we live in a world where we're enmeshed with people. There's no space. We're all wrapped up in each other. We do it with friends, family, in our jobs. We get all tangled up where I don't know where I begin and you end. We just get too caught up. And to fix that, we run from each other. Some of you are getting ready to do this. Thanksgiving, Christmas is coming. You've been enmeshed with your family, so you're running away from them. And it's like a yo-yo, too close, too far away, too close, too far away. What Ed would say is that differentiation means there's space between me and you. I'm not running from you, but we're, we're, we're different. And it's not just because you're a Florida graduate. Like, we actually are just different. <laughs> there's space for us to be with and yet apart. What Daniel was doing in this moment is he was saying, I am in this culture, but I am not of this culture. So he abstained from certain things that were not evil in and of themselves to remind himself that there was space between him and that world. What are you cultivating in your life right now that reminds you that Babylon doesn't own you? This is why fasting whether it be food or drink for intentional seasons of time or social media or whatever is so important for the Christian. Because when I fast, I tell my appetites, they are not the boss of me. And if you have little kids, your kids, you know, they, they want to be the boss of you. Our, our kids all had a moment in life where they were like, you are not the boss of me. And I was like, well, actually, yes, I am the boss of you. You can do the same thing with your appetites. When your appetites want to climb the ladder of priority in your life, is it because your appetites are bad? No. Our desire for security and comfort and satisfaction, within their proper boundary, these things are really good. But when they get out of their boundaries, they're not good. I once heard a, a wise man say, your appetites and desires make wonderful servants, but they make terrifying masters. A river inside its banks is life-giving. A river flooding its banks is destruction-inducing. So our desire for success, our desire for comfort, our desire for satisfaction, our desire for all these things within their proper subordination, they're good. Outside the boundary, not good. 
And so Daniel says no to certain things for certain periods of time in order to remember who he is. And that leads us to the fourth movement. Abstinence, intentional abstinence, helps us remember who we really are. Do you know that you get the same, when you open your phone, the same dopamine hit comes to you that you get when you're using drugs? I mean, it's, this is research-based. This, this is not voodoo psychology. Like you, you and I, we receive a hit. So the first step for me in saying no to that hit that Babylon gives is I went into my phone and I turned off all the notifications. Like I, I like my phone. I'm not going to become, you know, Amish here. Like I, I like my phone. I know how to say it. I was trying to be funny. <laughs> but what I can do is I can push back. Where is God inviting you to push back without being weird? Eugene Peterson said to be Christian means to be a naysayer. It means to learn how to say no in the right way and at the right time. Where is God inviting you to push back against Babylon? And I don't mean anxious hand-wringing, the world is falling apart and the sky is falling down. I don't mean that. I mean, where is God asking you to be differentiated? And where can you fast? Turning notifications off on your phone. You, the world will keep moving if you don't know in the moment that it happens what dictator was deposed or what storm hit in Iowa. The world will keep on rolling without you being constantly beckoned. Some of you, as I speak right now, your phones are buzzing at you. You actually have the power to turn off your notifications. I, shocking, but true. Where is God asking you to push back? You know what temperance means? Temperance means to go to fullness but not beyond. We have become an intemperate society, which means we don't know where the boundaries are. So we do too much. I would submit to you there's nothing wrong with alcohol, but too much of it, there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with food. Too much of it, a problem. God wants us to recognize that intentional abstinence helps us remember who we really are. It helps us remember where we belong. Where is the Lord asking you to push back? Where is God asking you to be intentional? What Daniel does is he says, I'm going to push back against Babylon and then we're going to see if I flourish or I don't flourish. Now the system wants you to get in line. The system of brokenness that's manifested for many of us in our jobs and our engagement with media and all the relationships and all the air that we breathe, those things seek to rename you, to take things from you, to disorient you, and to rehome you. Where is God asking you to say no? So does that mean we opt out of the world? It does not. The last movement in our text tells us that Daniel flourishes, which I would translate as God blesses fidelity. He blesses us saying yes to him and no to certain things. He blesses us knowing that we need to tend to those appetites. So here's the end of the deal. I don't normally do this, but if you uh, have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 29. If you don't, I'm going to read it and it'll, it'll, it'll just be heard by you. So these are words written to exiles in Babylon. Uh, in another book of the Bible. And this is what God says to those who live in exile. I would submit this is what God says to you. 
Verse uh, 4, Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So God says, this is not your home, but build and live. Plant and eat. Marry and make babies. Multiply and increase. Seek the welfare of the places you live. And constantly say to one another, but we're not from around here. Don't get confused about where your home is. And to those of you that have only ever known exile, I want to look at you and I want to say, I've been there and that is our home. I've tasted and seen the freedom that can come when the Holy Spirit begins to animate. And that's where we belong. And I want you to come. I want you to say it to each other. And then our living and our building and our planting and our eating and our multiplying and the welfare. It's just because we're called to be salt and light. But this is not where we come from. You come from somewhere. You're able to stand. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.